What does it mean to live in a golden age? Is it a flourishing of culture and the arts? Is it a time of prolonged peace and prosperity? Perhaps it's an era marked by scientific achievements or advancements. Maybe it's a combination of all three. There have been several golden ages throughout history, all of which are remembered to this day as they were recorded by those who witnessed and experienced them firsthand. The Pax Romana, or Roman peace, was one of the greatest, and exemplified Rome at the apex of its imperial ambitions and creative output. A continent away and separated by several centuries, the Mughal Empire in India reached its own golden age during the reign of Shah Jahan, roughly 1628 to 1658, whose many construction projects included the famed Red Fort in Rajasthan and the world-renowned and beloved Taj Mahal in Agra. Then, of course, there was the Renaissance. Born in Italy in the 15th century, it spread throughout Western Europe well into the 16th century and was marked by a burst of creativity and renewed interest in the art, architecture, and ideas of the ancient Greeks and Romans. The word Renaissance comes from the French meaning rebirth, and from the aforementioned European cultural zeitgeist at the start of the modern age, it has been applied to other such golden ages, including the topic of today's episode. As most of Western European countries were Roman successor states and or offshoots of the Roman Empire, much of Asia was once consolidated under the Mongol Empire. Officially lasting for a little over a century, it was the largest contiguous land empire in history, stretching as far north as Russia, as far south as India, as far east as the Korean Peninsula, and as far west as the Carpathian Mountains and what's now Romania. With the fall of the empire in 1368, several successor states emerged, in which Fonder Genghis Khan's descendants vied for land and power. One of these was the Timurid dynasty, ruled over by a man of mixed Turkic and Mongolic heritage named Timur, better known in the West as Tamerlane. With the conquest of several former Mongol holdings, he established the Timurid dynasty in 1370, and a golden age quickly followed, one that would last for over two centuries. What brought about the so-named Timurid Renaissance? What were some of the accomplishments and achievements to emerge from it? and what ultimately brought about its demise. I'm Chester Sakamoto, your host, and welcome to the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. Our story begins in 1365 in the city of Samarkand in what's now Uzbekistan. For centuries, this ancient settlement had served as a valuable and strategically important stop along the Silk Road, a lengthy trade route connecting east and west dating back to antiquity. In the 13th century, with the rapid expansion of the Mongol Empire, the city was sacked and burned to the ground in the campaigns of 1219 to 1221, in which the Central Asian Khwarazmian Empire, who ruled over Samarkand at the time, fell to Genghis Khan and his forces. From 1220 until 1365, the city was in Mongol hands, until a revolt led to their eventual abandonment of the site. Five years later, in 1370, a descendant of Genghis Khan of mixed Turkic and Mongolic heritage named Timur, or Tamerlane in the west, established the Timurid Empire and made Samarkand its capital. The city, which had been ravaged over a century before by Mongol hordes and had also suffered considerable damage in the revolt, was in desperate need of repair and a strong infrastructure. Thus, Tamerlane's first order of business was to rebuild the city. Being a conqueror, Tamerlane set out to do what he did best— that is, conquer, and quickly spread himself and his forces throughout much of Central Asia, particularly the Stan countries. But unlike his Mongol ancestors and forebears, who would often slaughter vast portions of a country or rival empire's citizenry, Tamerlane mandated that all artisans, craftsmen, and other creative and artistic types be kept alive, and sent back to the capital at Samarkand. His reason for doing this is clear to us now, but must have truly been a fright for those captured. Using their skills, he would rebuild Samarkand and restore it to its former glory. No sooner had the captives been deported to the capital that they were all put to work. Tamerlane's vision for the city was both expansive and ambitious. 
He commissioned several projects that would prove to be more than just testaments to his authority and reign. They would serve the civic, spiritual, and intellectual needs of his people. Of course, in true monomaniacal monarch fashion, however, the first of these was a summer palace in his birthplace of Shahrizabs in southern Uzbekistan. It was a massive pleasure palace that would serve as his summer getaway, and located just 50 miles, 80 kilometers south of Samarkand, it was easily accessible. Unfortunately, the ravages of time have only left the 213-foot or 65-meter-tall gate towers intact, though these in and of themselves are impressive, and are completely adorned in elaborate white, blue, and gold mosaics. Above the entryway, in large but elegant Persian script, an inscription rather amusingly reads, If you challenge our power, look at our buildings. The message is clear. The grand scale of such a structure was meant to reflect the glory and might of the Timurid Empire. With his summer palace underway, Tamerlane turned his attention back to Samarkand, where he launched several civic projects meant to make the capital an unrivaled cultural and intellectual center. As the monarch was a proud and devout Muslim, the first of these was the construction of a mosque, the famed Bibi Khanim Mosque, that still stands in the city's historic center. Commissioned before his successful capture of Delhi in northern India, it was nearly completed upon his return at the beginning of the 15th century. Unhappy with the results, however, he ordered many additions, the like of which were hastily done. The cupola, a staple in Islamic architecture, was rebuilt, and both the interiors and exteriors were adorned with intricate tilework and gilding meant to mimic the traditional brocade embroideries of the region. The structure was topped with three domes, inlaid with the finest tiles and semi-precious stones. A massive Quran stand fashioned entirely out of marble stood in the direct center of the building, as well as a courtyard so large that it was intended to contain the entirety of Samarkand. Khan's male population for worship. While Bibi Hanim Mosque underwent numerous add-ons and renovations throughout the duration of the Timurid Renaissance, many of which took place after Tamerlane's death, the structure was the capital's crown jewel and served as its spiritual center. But if the mosque was meant to serve the spiritual needs of the people, the Registan was the undisputed civic center of Samarkand. From the Persian meaning place of sand, the Registan was intended to be a public square of sorts, where people could gather to hear imperial proclamations, witness executions of convicted criminals and enemies, and even buy and sell goods in a sort of precursor to a farmer's market that assembled every so often. Heralded by blasts through large copper pipes known as tsarkis, Tamerlane himself would deliver addresses to the public, and oftentimes carry out the sentences and executions. In his lifetime, a madre an Islamic place of learning, was commissioned as well, meant to flank the western side of the square, though sadly he wouldn't live to see its completion. His grandson, Uluq Beg, the governor of Samarkand, who would one day assume the throne, was the man who saw its construction through, giving it his name, and would one day teach astronomy within its walls. The madrasa quickly became one of the greatest in the entire Islamic world, drawing students and scholars from all over the east to study a diverse array of subjects, from the scripture of the Quran and the Arabic and Persian poetry of the time to mathematics, astronomy, and history. In the following century, two more madrasas would be built on the northern and eastern flanks of the Registan respectively, each of whose halls saw some of the best and brightest minds in the Islamic world. The benefit of gathering craftsmen and artisans from throughout the Timurid Empire was revealed especially in the years following Tamerlane's death. Not only were the greatest and most skilled brought to Samarkand and other cosmopolitan centers to showcase their impressive work, but such an environment made for a uniquely diverse collage of artistic and architectural styles from across the continent. As the empire was predominantly Muslim, Islamic art was the standard, though it was interwoven with elements from the Mongol Empire, the latter of which formed an integral part in the Timurid cultural identity. 
When the Timurids conquered neighboring Persia in the 15th century, Persian art was incorporated into the Timurid style. This is perhaps most apparent in manuscripts and religious texts of the time, whose art as well as their vibrant color palettes come directly from Persian culture. Known as the arts of the book, Timurid artists are often credited with building upon, perfecting, and bringing this exclusively Persian art form to its apex. It's important to note that this flourishing of the arts wasn't confined solely to literary texts. Immense wall paintings and portraits were a common feature in Timurid palaces and civic institutions. Drawing upon both Persian and Chinese artistic traditions, the result was a hybrid artistic style that, in the years since its creation, has become intrinsically linked with the Timurids. Blacksmiths from conquered lands were brought to Samarkand, where they forged beautiful works of art out of steel and silver inlay. In fact, it was at this time that Timurid silver inlaid steel became highly prized and sought after throughout Asia and even into Europe. Jade was imported from China, and along with ceramics, such objects were carved and forged in the traditional Chinese manner. Architecture, as with the aforementioned Bibi Hanim Mosque and the Registan, with its three shimmering madrasas, was characterized by the use of blue and turquoise tiles, each of which were used to make elaborate geometric patterns that continue to impress to this day. While the arts reflected the immense wealth, power, and sophistication of the Timurids, the knowledge and discovery that emerged from the empire at this time was truly unprecedented, and rivaled the Italian Renaissance in Europe that was taking place at roughly the same time. The reign of Tamerlane, for example, saw the arrival of one of the Islamic world's preeminent scholars at Samarkand, Jamshid al-Kashi. A learned man in both mathematics and astronomy, he was given high rank by Tamerlane and received even greater support by his successor, Shah Rukh and his queen, Gawar Shad, the pair of whom were quite passionate about the sciences and encouraged those in their court to pursue intellectual endeavors. And remember Uluch Beg, Tamerlane's grandson and the man who saw the completion of his eponymous Madrasa? Well, his reign, short as it was, just two years from 1447 to 1449, saw the Timurid Empire through the peak of its mathematical and scientific achievements. Under this new sultan's authority, the mathematician Al-Kashi developed his theorem, now known as the Law of Cosines, in which he discovered that the length of the sides of a triangle relate to the cosine of one of its angles. This theorem is still in use today, and has become an integral part of the field of trigonometry. Astronomy saw further developments as well, with the publication of the Sulam al-Sama, the ladder of the sky, which proved pivotal in determining the size and distance of such heavenly bodies as the moon, sun, and stars. Instruments used to track the movements of celestial entities also appeared at this time, including an analog computing mechanism that could measure, with incredible accuracy, a star's trajectory. With so much scientific development taking place, Uluch Beg decided that the best way to share these advancements and knowledge with the world was to open an institute for the study of mathematics and the sciences. This university drew students and scholars from all over Central Asia and even beyond. As such, the greatest minds in the entire Islamic world assembled within its walls, including Ali Kushji, who introduced evidence of the Earth's rotation in a treatise titled Concerning the Supposed Dependence of Astronomy Upon Philosophy. Having rejected the philosophies of those who came before him, namely the Greeks such as Plato and Aristotle, Kushji created an entirely new ideology that separated natural philosophy from astronomy, an unheard of notion at the time. Such was the exciting environment that defined the Timurid Renaissance. For two centuries, the Timurid Empire flourished, the undisputed cultural center and light of both the Eastern and Islamic worlds. But by the late 15th century, it had fallen into decline, and it soon became apparent that its glory days were over. As it was being confronted on all sides by rival states and peoples, it quickly began losing territory in the early to mid-15th century. Eventually, the empire was divided up into disparate territories and holdings. It would, however, survive in another form, as one of its last leaders, a man named Babur, a descendant of Tamerlane, invaded India in 1526 and established the Mughal Empire, 
which would last all the way up to the British annexation of the subcontinent in 1857. Today, all that's left of the Timurid Empire and its glorious renaissance are written historical records, along with the opulent architectural marvels they left behind. The Registan, the gates of Tamerlane Summer Palace, and the Bibi Khanim Mosque are some of Uzbekistan's top tourist attractions, which continue to dazzle and delight with their graceful craftsmanship and intricate designs. Indeed, Tamerlane's message, which was inscribed in elegant Persian script over the entrance of his summer palace, echoes and resonates through the ages. If you challenge our power, look at our buildings. Who, in all honesty, could question the power of such a vast and mighty empire, the like of which left behind some of the most beautiful and breathtaking monuments the world has ever known? Thanks for listening, and a very happy new year to all my listeners. I pray that 2022 has been treating you all kindly so far. I personally feel that we could use a much-needed change after the past couple years, wouldn't you say? I have a great schedule of topics lined up for the coming weeks, and I do so hope you'll be sticking around to catch them. After all, as time marches on, it's always a good idea to look back into our past to see just how far, or how little, we've come in our brief yet wondrous time on this planet. If you enjoyed this and all my previous episodes and would like to support me to ensure continued content, please consider becoming a monthly supporter. Just visit anchor.fm slash historylovescompany and click the support button. You can choose from three monthly support plans that fit your budget. Listening and sharing help me in a big way, so please do so on all streaming platforms. Tune in next week as we take a look at one of the biggest and most important libraries in history, right here on the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. This is Chester Sakamoto signing off. See you next time. Thank you.